Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. This morning we will be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 to 17, as we continue to just go through this marvelous gospel. And um, even in the chapter that we just read of Lazarus is uh, being risen from, from the dead, time and time again, uh, John is recording for us uh, the glories of Christ and uh, the reality of who he is, the Son of God who came to um, bring salvation to lost and ruined sinners. And um, the confirmation is all over the pages of Scripture. Um, if you can't see that, um, it's not because God has not made himself known uh, through this testimony regarding his son. It's just simply because you refuse to believe it. Uh, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, the truth is laid before us over and over again, and those who reject that truth are rejecting it, as I said, not because God has not given them enough to believe, but they reject it because they simply will not believe. And we noted last time at the end of chapter 4 how the official who came from Capernaum to beg Jesus to heal his dying son, we, we noted how he was a picture of the overall view of Israel toward Jesus. They looked at Jesus as a miracle worker. They were enamored with Jesus, with the signs he was doing, because you couldn't really reject the signs. The signs were there. It was clear there was something unique about this Jesus. And so uh, they couldn't really reject the signs. And so what they did is they at least embraced him and said, oh, yeah, look at this Jesus and what he's doing, these miracles. He's here to help. And so they loved it. He was a miracle worker among them, and they were enamored with all of those signs. But by and large, uh, Jesus's own people still rejected him as the Messiah, as their Messiah. And so Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And so this was one of the main points in John's gospel that he opened with in chapter 1, verse 11. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so up to this point, we've seen his own people's opposition to him. And you might say in the beginning here, the opposition toward Jesus is, if you were to categorize it, you might say um, it's kind of, like I said, indifference or ignorance to his identity as the Messiah. Uh, they're not interested in who he was, or they're not interested in what he was teaching them about the kingdom of God, about the forgiveness of sin, about salvation. Um, they weren't interested in that. Even though they were amazed by how powerfully he taught, you see in the other gospels, they were like, man, this one doesn't teach like our scribes and our leaders and Pharisees. This this man is teaching as one who has authority. And we know that's true because Jesus spoke from his own authority. Like there was, he didn't have to appeal to anyone. He just spoke and you could hear his authoritative voice. And so they really, their opposition was more of just this 
oh, he's authoritative, he's a miracle worker, but they were indifferent to him and his teaching. Now, when it came to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and those who were kind of in charge, you might say, you would categorize their opposition up until this point, I think, I mean, I did as kind of irritation and confusion wrapped into one, right? Um, they're, they're confused by Jesus because they see thousands of people flocking to him. They see the signs he's doing. Uh, they see his uniqueness and his authority, and, and they're confused because why are all these people going to this carpenter? Why are all these people going to this, this man who doesn't have the kind of training that we have? He didn't go to the local rabbi school. He didn't sit under Gamaliel's teaching. He didn't sit under the high priest's teaching. And yet here he is, and people are flocking to him. And so they're, they're kind of confused, but they're not only confused, but they're also irritated. They're irritated at the presence of Jesus because of the stir, stir that he's creating. And Jesus is kind of stepping on their turf, if you will, and they're really bothered by him. So this is kind of how their opposition is right now. It's irritating. It's confusing. Um, they're indifferent in a way, and they're annoyed. But that opposition, John, is going to show us, in, especially here in chapter 5 to 7, is takes a turn. And the opposition moves from indifference and ignorance and annoyance and it moves to more of an outright rejection and opposition so much so that at the end of this little section of chapter 5 to 7 um, you read in chapter 7 verse 25 that some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said is not this the man whom they seek to kill. So the opposition now is growing. The opposition to Jesus is growing to the point now where they want to kill him. The more Jesus made himself known to them and the more Jesus showed himself to be the obedient son of God by all of the things he was doing, the more they turned against him in unbelief. I mean, just think about where we've been. Jesus did, John didn't record everything, but even from what he recorded, Jesus turned water into wine. Just in the Gospel of John, he, he, um, he went into the temple with authority and he single-handedly cleaned out the temple he healed an official son from a distance. In the other Gospels, we read how he cast out demons, how he healed the sick and the lame and the paralyzed and the blind. We know how Jesus calmed the sea. He fed thousands by just making it with his hands, right, um, out of nothing. All of these things that they see and they're witnessing the more that Jesus tries to make himself known to them and does make himself known, the more that they reject and push Jesus away to the point where they really want to put him to death. 
I thought about that in this transition, and I thought, I think that's just as true today as it was back then. Because one of the things that you realize, even from the scriptures, and maybe to even to a certain extent in your own life, depending on you know, who you maybe have met, but you realize in the scripture that the presence of holiness, if you are legitimately in the presence of perfect holiness, I said to a certain extent you might know it because you might have met godly people and been like, wow, you know, this, this person just seems to be walking so faithfully and there's a sense in which they just have a, a presence about them even in this life, but they're not perfectly holy. But if you're in the presence of perfect holiness, perfect holiness has a way of repelling sin. Sinners don't like to be in the presence of holiness. In the very beginning in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and I go back to this often because it's so important for us to understand our condition before God apart from Christ. But when you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden and they sinned against God, the first thing that they do is they hide themselves. They hide themselves because they say, I am ashamed and I am afraid to be in your presence because God's holy presence, his, his character, his purity, his goodness, when sinners come before him, we, we are so uncomfortable being in his presence because of our sin. And you see the same thing happen in, with Israel when they go into the wilderness and then they come before Mount Sinai. And God says to them, to Moses, he lets Moses come before him. Moses himself, having seen the burning bush, right? Take your sandals off your feet. This is holy ground. And Moses is terrified, but God has to comfort him. And then he's up on Mount Sinai, and God tells Moses, don't let the people come even around the border of the mountain. Don't let them break through that barrier lest they come up and they die. And you have thunders and lightnings and quakes, and you have this rumbling of an entire mountain, and the people are terrified. They're terrified because God is holy. He's not like us. He does not have sin like we have sin. And you see it with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah has the vision of the temple and, and the robe of the Lord is filling the temple with glory. And you know the passage well in Isaiah 6. Isaiah's response is, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. And he says, I am undone. And when he says undone, you, you think of it in terms of, a, of maybe a, a knitted uh, blanket or something and and you begin to pick at that that loose yarn and you pick at it and you pull it and the more that you pull that yarn out 
the more that the blanket just begins to become undone. It, it really starts to unravel. And this is what Isaiah is saying in the presence of God's holiness. He says, I am unraveling before you. And I, I don't know that we actually understand that kind of presence of holiness. Maybe we don't think about it enough, but when we are coming before God Almighty, we are coming before a God that really, if left to ourselves and in our sin, we should be unraveling before. And so Jesus is making himself known, not just by his signs, but his very presence among them. And the more that they see him and the more that it is becoming clear that this is not just some ordinary man, the more that in their hardness of heart, rather than being attracted to the light, they are repelled by him. And I think it happens today. In fact, I know that it is happening today in churches all over the world. And you know it's happening because there are Christians preaching the gospel today in churches. And today in churches, Jesus is being proclaimed. And today in churches, as people are hearing Jesus proclaimed to them, people are still rejecting him. And in rejecting Christ as your God and as your Lord and Savior, you are, in essence, joining those who do, join with the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of the world to want Jesus to be put to death. Make, make no mistake about it. The world that we live in, beloved, wants Jesus to die again. They want Jesus dead. They want Jesus to be killed. They don't want his word proclaimed. They don't want his word listened to. They do not want to hear it. And the more clearly that it goes out, the more violent the opposition goes. There are places in the world that will not permit the reading or hearing of God's word because it proclaims Jesus. Even in Canada right now, they just passed that new bill. I think it's CB4, it's called. You know, we have family that lives there, Nancy's family's from Canada. And <clears throat> you may have heard this, but they passed the law that basically out outlaws what they call conversion therapy. And by conversion therapy, they simply mean that if you tell anyone um, that, that their sin is wrong, whether it's homosexuality or they're struggling with transgender identity and you bring God's word to bear on them and you say homosexuality is a sin that needs to be repented of, which is what God's word says. We even just read that. Um, or heard that in the class on sanctification this morning. If you say that a man is a man, is a biological man, and a woman is a woman, is a biological woman, and there's, you can't transition from one to the other, and you clearly state what God's word says, which is the word of Christ, you can be arrested and thrown in jail for up to five years, and you can be even fined anywhere from $20,000 to $100,000. Like, this is the world that we live in. 
to proclaim the truth and to speak the word of Christ is creates a hostile opposition. And the reason it creates a hostile opposition is because there is no greater authority in the world. There is no authority that is above the authority of God. And so when God makes himself known to people, the natural inclination of the sinner is to want to kill God and get rid of God, and they can't. And so it's the same thing today. And when you side with the world, beloved, when people side with the world and the world's cause, they are siding, siding against God. There, there is no in-between, in other words. There, the lie of the world today is that there is some kind of neutrality. There is no neutrality. Either you are with God or you are presently against God. Either you believe that Jesus is risen and alive and you can be alive and risen in him, or you are saying with those who crucified him, crucify him, crucify him. That's it. There is nothing in between. And so here, their opposition is growing because our Lord is making his glory known to it, to them. And this is why Jesus will say later in chapter 12 of John, he'll say, <clears throat> before he offers himself on the cross as he's getting ready to go to die and conquer sin and death, he says, unless... The Father who sent me draws you. You simply will not come because you basically love darkness. And so this opposition is going to grow so great by his own people that he is ultimately going to go to the cross and be crucified for our sin. He's going to shed his blood. He's going to have a crown of thorns placed on his head. He's going to be mocked and spit and beat, and he's going to be whipped and flogged, and he's going to have God's wrath and judgment poured out on him who knew no sin. And he's going to do this in love to redeem the very sinners that reject him. That's me and you. We rejected him in our sin. We rejected Christ and we hated him. And it is as if you and I were at that cross. And we would be the ones who would spit on Jesus as he walked by. And we would be the ones who would say, crucify him, crucify him. And we would be the ones who would form the whip. And we would hand it to the soldiers. And we would say, flog him. Because he doesn't deserve to live in this world that we inhabit. 
If you don't know that about your own heart, you don't know the depth of the sin that really dwells in you. You are still in some way thinking that I would never do that. You are still in some way thinking that you actually are good enough to come into the holy presence of God based off of your own merits. You are probably comparing yourself to some heinous man or woman that walked on the earth and said, I am not a Hitler. I am not a Mao Zedong. I am not Kim Jong-un from Korea. I am not, I am not Stalin. But I am good and righteous in some way. I have goodness dwelling in me. And in some way, when I come into the presence of holiness, God will look at me and he will accept me because I'm just so lovable. And I'm so good. And the reality is, Unless you come to terms with the fact, beloved, that if left to yourself, you would never come to Christ. I know I wouldn't have. But see, this is the good news of the gospel. So Jesus came, and he came for sinners like you and me. And no matter what you have done in this life, and no matter how bad your sin is, Christ gave his life to save you. And it's all of his grace. And there is nothing in you that is deserving of it. There is nothing in you that can earn it. What Christ says is, I came to give my life for you, sinner, and what it requires of you is nothing but to believe, to place your faith in Jesus Christ so that you might live. And so the opposition is growing here. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 17, we'll just go through it shortly we see this opposition transition with the healing of this man at the pool in Bethesda. Here's what God's word says. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. After this, meaning after he healed the official son. I don't know how much time has passed don't know specifically what feast this is, but it's one of the feasts that the Jews were obligated to attend. And of course, Jesus, being obedient as he is uh, to the whole entire law, goes to this feast. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was, was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, 
he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. What, a, what an account. Here is a man who has been sick and destitute, lame, paralyzed. I don't know exactly what it was, but he obviously couldn't move on his own. And he had been that way for 38 years. And he was that way for 38 years on account of his own sin. And we know that because when Jesus says to him, go and sin no more, that something worse may happen to you, the implication is, is that this man's condition was a condition of his own doing. It was a condition of the life that he lived and the choices that he made and, and the sin that he engaged him put him in that condition. And he's there for 38 years. He comes to this pool and he comes to be healed because... Uh, you'll notice in your own uh, ESV, if you're reading the ESV version, you'll, you'll notice that the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is, is not there. It kind of goes from verse 3 to verse 5. And the reason that the ESV does that is because the oldest manuscripts don't actually have the end of verse 3 and verse 4 in them. And so what they chose to do is they said, well, let's put that verse in a footnote. So they're not trying to change God's word. They're just saying the oldest manuscripts don't contain that section. And so they took it out and they put it in the footnote there to say that we, we aren't sure that this is really in the original manuscripts. Now, the reason and what would sometimes happen is scribes or people that are um, putting notes in afterward, there was a an understanding in these pools that were there in Bethesda, which is called the house of outpouring the, or the pool of outpouring. 
of God's mercy. They would, there were people that would later put these footnotes in there to explain why these people went to this pool. So they went to the pool because they believed that an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters and whoever was the first one into the waters would be healed. And so later people would add in that note in there afterward um, to explain why these people, invalids and lame ones and, and cripples would go, or just plain sick, would go to the pool to enter into the water. That's why they would do it. And so the oldest manuscripts don't have it doesn't mean it, there's not some older manuscript that they'll find that does have it, right, that verse. And so the point, though, I think is this. Whether or not it's original in there or not, this is what happened. This is why people went to the pool um, in order to be healed. And they're all sitting there under the colonnade. And this pool, by the way, was discovered around, uh, I think it's 369 or something like that, um, A.D. They actually discovered this pool with the colonnades and, um, and a roof, five columns just like that. And this is where the people would lay. And so did the angel do that? Did God do that? People say no. They don't think it, it did. It was just a, a uh, rumor. I think it's very possible that he could have. I think they, God could have very well healed people every time the angel of the Lord came down and stirred it. I don't see why not. And maybe what God wanted to do was to remind the Jewish people that he's still there, the Messiah's coming, and he's still showing you grace and mercy in this pool here at Bethesda, which is, I think, on the northeast part of the temple up in that area by the sheep gate where the sheep would come in. Maybe God healed them. But they still rejected him. In any case, whether it's happened or not, um, people were being laid there. And this man was there for 38 years. And Jesus comes to him. And he asks him a question. And he's not looking to see if this man has enough faith to be healed. Uh, Jesus can heal people who have no faith. But he asks him, I think, to get the man thinking about his own life. He says, do you want to be healed? And so the sick man, sick man as in ailing, not sick man with a sicko in his head, right? This sick man, I think he answers Jesus. And, it's, and you can tell by his response later when he runs to tell the religious leaders that Jesus did it. He, he answers Jesus, not in some plea for mercy, but it's almost like he's saying, duh. That, that's how I picture him saying it. Why do you think I'm here, sir? I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, trying to drag myself down there, he goes, and another guy just steps over me and goes in first. Like, so you can see, he kept going, wanting to be healed. And so he, Jesus asks him this question, and he's not responding in faith. He, he's basically responding like a grumpy, bitter old man 
who's been there for 38 years, and he's like, what kind of a question is that? That's how he's responding. And Jesus, he's so kind. When he goes to the pool, there were a lot of people he could have picked, a lot of people he could have healed. But he picks this man, this grumpy man, who gives him a thick-tongued response. And Jesus says three things. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. That's it. Get up, take up your bed, and walk. What does he do? He gets up, takes up his bed, and he walks. How about that? How about that? Jesus just healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years by just telling him, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And immediately he does. This is absolutely incredible. You have faith healers claiming to be faith healers that can't do that. Nobody can do that. The whole man's body is restored in a moment, and he's healed. And he should be saying, my Lord and my God. And he should be filled with thanksgiving. And he should be turning to Christ in praise and adoration. But John notes, he did it on the Sabbath. What? Why does he note that? Why does John say that he did it on the Sabbath? And the reason John says he did it on the Sabbath, because rather than that kind of response toward Jesus... Instead, these vile sinners, these sick-minded people, as you and I have been, were so upset that Jesus would heal a man on the Sabbath day. Isn't that just like us? We... Rather than rejoicing in Christ, we have our own rules, our own laws, our own regulations, our own religions. And if Jesus doesn't fit in with our religious convictions and our laws, then we just as best cast Jesus out. That's what they did. He, they say, they find this man, what are you doing carrying your mat? On the Sabbath, that's one of our 39 additional laws that we made around the Sabbath day. You shouldn't be carrying your mat from one place to another on the Sabbath. They're mad at this man. And so the, the man who's healed, he basically blames Jesus. He, he's so afraid of these Pharisees that they, they, he says, hey, look, that man who told me, take up my bed and walk, and I, and I obeyed him. I walked. And so they're so struck by this, they're saying, who is this man who has the audacity to tell you to do something on the Sabbath 
in violation of our laws. And of course, the man didn't know because Jesus had gone away. But when Jesus finds him in the temple and he says to him, see, you are well, he says, sin no more. And he says that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, listen, gentlemen, now that I have healed you, don't go living like you have lived because if you keep down that path, in other words, Jesus is saying something worse is going to happen to you. What is worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? Death. Separated from God for eternity. Hell. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I healed you. You didn't even believe in me. You had no faith. And Jesus says, I've shown you mercy. Now sin no more. Because if you keep down that path, not only might you end up for 38 more years paralyzed, but you will end up for eternity separated from God in hell. This is what he tells him. And the man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. In other words, he didn't go to praise Jesus and point them to Jesus because Jesus healed him. He actually went away because he wanted to tell the Pharisees and the scribes that's the man who did it. He was more afraid of these men than he was afraid of God. And so he goes and he tells them, and these Pharisees then don't praise Jesus for his healing, but instead John says in verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. In other words, I'm just doing what I've been doing from the beginning. Created the heavens and the earth in six days and when on the seventh day, it says I rested, God rested. He didn't rest. He didn't create the heavens and the earth on the seventh day. But who do you think's upholding the world? Who do you think's sustaining everything? Who do you think's spinning the globe? Who do you think's feeding the animals? Who do you think's growing the plants? Who do you think's signing, shining the sun? God is. And Jesus is saying, I'm working just like I have from the beginning, which is another way of saying I am God. And we will see next week that that proclamation, not only did he say and do these things on the Sabbath, but the Jews get it. The point is this. He was making himself out to be God. And Jesus is making himself out before you and I, beloved, by this miracle to be the Son of God. Believe on him and you will have eternal life. Go and 
sin like you've sinned before and reject him and you will have eternal hell. May God grant to you and I the faith to believe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the testimony regarding your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we could read about your goodness and your grace here in this passage. We can read that even in the midst of opposition and rejection of your name and who you are, that you still show acts of kindness and mercy just as you do and have done from the very beginning. You created the heavens and the earth and we sinned and you continued to provide and show grace and mercy and uh, mankind continued to rebel and, and we saw that even this morning in this passage. You showed an act of mercy and the people opposed you and rejected you and rather than giving you glory, they turned their hearts against you. Lord, we pray and ask for forgiveness for our own selfish and rebellious hearts where you have been kind to us and rather than thanking you, uh, we just often turn inward and, and rebel against you. Forgive us, O oh God, for that. Thank you, Christ, for redeeming us and for seeing us sinners who were at once lame and unable to walk and see and blind and, and were sick under our weight of our own sin. And you came into this world and you drew us unto yourself and you gave us faith to believe and you healed us not only of our physical ailments, but you healed us mostly of our uh, sin and defilement and you gave us new life. And we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for coming to go to the cross to die for our sin. And, and we just pray that you would help us to honor you and to believe upon you and to love you and to be faithful to you till the end. We need your strength and mercy to do that. We know that we are sinners in our flesh even now. None of us here is perfect. None of us here is righteous. None of us here is worthy. Keep us from pride and from self-exaltation. Keep us from thinking that we are good enough or righteous enough. Keep us from thinking and looking to all of the things that we do in this life as if that will keep us getting into heaven. Like the Pharisees thought that Sabbath keeping was their ticket into glory, keep us from such falseness, O oh God, that we might not rely on the amount of Bible reading that we do, that we may not place our hope in the amount of prayers that we offer, that we might not place our hope in the number of times that we attend church, that we might not place our hope in the number of people that we feed. O oh God, keep us from looking to all of the things that we do in this life as a means of attaining grace and salvation and keep us looking to Christ. For you, Lord Jesus, are the only one who is good enough and righteous enough and holy enough. You're the only one who has fulfilled the law perfectly, not only in every action that you did, Lord Jesus, but in every word that you spoke 
in every thought that ever went through your mind, in, in everything that ever left your tongue. There was never a sin committed in any way. Lord Jesus, we need you. We thank you for loving us and for forgiving us of our sin. And we thank you that we could come to your table and we could remember that sacrifice that you have done for us and we can rejoice in it. For we know that in you our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We ask that you would bless this bread and bless this juice to our bodies.